Okay, here we are. August 12, 2012, uh, lecture discussion number 78 on the Book of Romans. And for all of you folks uh, that have emailed me with regard to the website, I have passed that along to Supper Dave. And he has the responsibility of contacting you. And that's, of course, Peter in, in Australia and uh, Karen in Missouri and um, Sharon um, in Texas and all the rest of you who have volunteered to help on that website. We'll figure out how to utilize you. We just aren't that smart yet. So uh, you'll have to give us a little time uh, to work that out. But uh, now it's all Supper Dave's fault, and I'm, of course, absolved of all responsibility once again. Okay, last week, lecture discussion number 77 naturally had somewhat of a title, and you might remember the title. I don't know if you do, but I said... um, I referred to it as the uh, no matter what maybe lecture. No matter what maybe, I thought that I would be getting out of Acts 2 uh, and Exodus 20 and Revelation 6, 7, 8 and essentially 9. No matter what maybe, I thought. Well, today is going to be that maybe portion as things have worked out. I still got a few small pieces uh, to sweep up. And I, I, every now and then, believe it or not, I actually look at my own uh, lectures and, and go through them to see how I've done. And, and I review my notes to see what I've left out, what's missing. And, and you should know lots of things are missing, uh, by the way. That's something that, that is without, doesn't need to be said. No one ever accomplishes all that there is to find in Scripture. It's not humanly possible. Uh, people that claim to have solved a particular passage are or uh, that's just self-aggrandizement. Uh, that is simply not going to ever be true, and it is ignorant and, and uh, arrogant to think otherwise. You're not going to find all there is to find in Scripture. And, and writing sermons ultimately uh, on passages is a grand exercise on the omission of critical truth. And I do it every Sunday, and I know I'm doing it. I know that I can't find everything, and I've given up trying to fit everything I do find into a lecture uh, just simply because it takes too much uh, to do so, and, and it's overwhelming. And, and I've also given up feeling bad about giving up, which uh, that's a first step in overcoming uh, your denial. Many times I've been told, I get this a, a, a great deal, and it starts out sort of like this, hey, you aged, hefty person with bad haircut. I've heard a lecture of yours from, and pick a day, 15 years ago, some of them, uh, you know, 10 years ago, whatever it is, and whatever passage, insert your own passage, and then they, they go on to say, and none of what you said today, or when I heard the most recent now, was in what you said 15, 20 years ago, or 15 years for sure, and what gives, did you forget everything that you taught already? And that's very common. Uh, and the short answer all the time is no. I haven't forgotten everything already. I remember very small parts of everything. <laughs> I saw a young man the other day, just, Coach, Coach, how you doing, Coach? I'm looking at him going, I, I have no idea who you are. None. I have coached since 1971. Think about that for a second. Uh, uh, This is the first year I didn't. How about that? First year I did not coach something since 1971. Um, I kept score. 
and I did it badly. But, uh, and it was all I could do to watch it. And we're talking, yes, about Anna's softball team. Anyway, I had coached this young man, and he was sure he remembered me, and I had no idea that who he was. I did not remember him. So I talked to him for a long time, completely faking it. So I haven't forgotten everything already, uh, um, but I have forgotten lots of things. And so what I do, and uh, this is my saving grace. Uh, this is what Anna wants. Uh, uh, she, she said only one thing she wants is this Bible that I have. I'm still using this one. I have a couple others, but mostly this one is what I've been using for the last uh, 14 years at least. And I have all kinds of notes in it. And I argue with the guy that wrote the commentary because he's wrong all the time. And I have to let him know. And so I'm constantly screaming at him. But I have notes all through it. And so by using the same Bible, I filled it with little prompting reminders to help me remember things. And, and then that's doing what it needs to do for my sake. And I'm still utilizing the same commentaries. Uh, as you know, I only use long dead people. Long, long dead people. In other words, dead for a long time. Except for Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum and Edward Chumney. All the rest of them are dead. There's a reason for that. And all of those commentaries, all of those books are likewise covered with notations uh, from when I first went through them when I was younger and more so alert and thoughtful. And that makes me remember. It's funny, as I, I say this story all the time, I think, wow, I have thought of something I have never thought of before. Look how smart I am. And I run to one of my commentaries and I open it up to find out who agrees with me. And I find me from 10, 12, 15 years ago. And I had written it out beautifully. And I couldn't remember a thing I had written. And I remark about how good of a handwriting I had then. But it was like it was brand new. So I'm getting to the place where everything is almost brand new. But I, again, no, I, the short answer, I remember eventually. But I intentionally do not put everything in any particular analysis of a passage. I do that on purpose, out of deference to the longtime regulars who shuffle in most Sundays. I, I intentionally, as I said, attempt to include as much as I left out the first time I did it in order to uh, keep them um, from drooling heavily all over each other. I don't mind the light to medium drooling. That's good. That cleans the carpet and the, and the furniture a little bit. But the heavy drooling takes weeks to dry and it's a mess. It need, and I'm saying this mostly for the Internet people. Many of the folks here have endured Exodus 20 and Acts 2 15, 20 times. And you should see their faces. They have heard it and heard it and heard it. And, and they have heard it before and they've heard it before before. And, and there's only so much indulgence and so much courtesy. They will boo and throw things eventually. So I do on purpose try to make it different each time I do it. And I figure out what I left out, and I add that in, and things that I have done before, I intentionally, intentionally leave out, and I know I'm leaving them out, uh, and I can't help but leave them out, and neither can anybody else. So enough of that. I just said that because of 
some recent comments that I've been getting. Okay, cleaning up a few things, and then off we go to Romans 5.12 or thereabouts. I still unresolved. I still have an unresolved list that I need to try to knock out. I have Revelation um, 8 and 9. Um, I have experience versus Scripture. This is something that comes out all the time. People's experiences and how powerful are they. Uh, I'm going to address that with somebody that I, I found uh, recently. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Uh, uh, C.S. Lewis addresses this issue of how powerful our experiences are versus the Bible. Um, I think you'll find it interesting. I intend to read it to you today. The golden calf makers, okay? The fact that they are in both Exodus and Acts 2. I need to put more time into that for you. I have the trumpet sign that I haven't really been able to get to yet. And I have the language sign or the thundering sign, okay? The language or thunderings begin, or voices, language, language sign, or voices sign, okay? Or thunderings. All of that is the same. And language, very, very important to understand how, uh, the language sign, and I've not done it right yet, or not well anyway. And then I have the Genesis 11 reversal sign. He reverses the Tower of Babel, right? He does that at Acts 2. He does it at Revelation 6. He does it at Exodus 20. He does it when he's on the cross. Again, he needs no translating. That's very important. When no translation is necessary, that's telling you something powerful. If you're in a place where there's translation necessary, that has nothing to do with the language sign or the voice's thundering sign. It's just something that man is doing, and it's silly. And then the Bible outside of time. Many people think the Bible is not outside of time. And I made a reference a while back. Let me say it again. Does the Bible, does the author of the Bible include references to the Bible inside the Bible outside of time? Yes, he does. That may or may not make sense. And then I need to spend more time with personality. Personality cults. Or what I also called the other day the Tony Robbins idiot test. So that's my list. And, and uh, can I get it done today? No. No. But that's what I'm trying to finish so I can get away from Acts 2 once and for all. And we can get back to Romans where we left off, 512 or thereabouts. And there's certainly more that, that need more, if that makes sense. Uh, but that, the, the affirmation, affirmation so far had the least attention, and they do need more attention. So they've made today's list. Hopefully, you remember from Revelation 8, and I don't know if I even brought it up yet. I'm not sure that I have. I couldn't tell if I've read Revelation 8 before. Uh, I have a note to read it, but sometimes I ignore my own notes. So I'm not positive I read Revelation 8, but if I haven't, we're going to have to do it today anyway, so it's okay. But hopefully you remember from Revelation 8, the half hour of silence. Have I mentioned the half hour of silence yet and how that ties into Acts 2 or uh, Exodus 20? Um, from the look of things, I might not have. Um, and then you have the hail and the fire mingled with blood and then all the thirds. 
Anybody, have I covered any of the thirds or read any of Revelation 8 about the thirds? No, Kathy in the front row is scrunching up her face. So I probably haven't done that. i got the third, third of the trees, the third of the sea, the third of the sun, the third of the moon, the third of the stars, the third of the rivers and the springs, and all of that we have to address as well because it's in Revelation 8 and 9. And if you've read ahead, perhaps you've noticed the smoke of the great furnace in Revelation 9 too. So again, once again, I have smoke. If I have smoke, what else am I going to have? Almost all the time. What am I going to have next? I'm going to have fire, and if i got smoke and fire, then I'm going to have trumpets or noises, and I'm going to have thunderings or voices or language. Those four signs will show up. And they are present, they are described uh, in Revelation 7, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And primarily 8 and 9 for those. 6 has the uh, blood moon and the black sun, which we've done, and I won't go back and do it all. Those are in a previous lecture for those who follow. But again, the, the smoke, the noises, the thunderings, and the lightnings, which is the same as the smoke or the wind sometimes, the trumpets, the languages, and the fire, are present and described. And, and the, that means that the third part of Exodus 20, when, when again, one more time, God comes to Exodus 20 with a three-part sermon. He delivers the first part at Exodus 20. He delivers the second part at Acts 2. And now the third part is being delivered in Revelation 6, 7, and 8, and 9. And then that, this is the third part of the Exodus 20 sermon of God. And it's being implemented now, and he uses his signs again, just like he did the first two times. He's doing it again the third time, and I can't say that often enough. So what does this all mean? That's the Acts 2.12 question. And what should mankind do? That's the Acts 2.37 question. And that's going to come into play. And how we start again is we read Revelation 8. So let's go to Revelation 8. And now you start reading it, I hope that you do, with this kind of understanding that you're in Acts 2 and Exodus 20. So, here we go, Revelation 8.1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for a half hour. Okay? We'll make a list. I'll get rid of the Tony Robbins idiot test off the board. A little bit of item five, and we'll make a list. I got a half hour of silence. You start asking questions while I go on. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. Okay? I got seven angels. And they all got trumpets. So I have now the seven angel trumpet section of God. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel. And this is a wonderful question of the another angel. Just gave you the first three questions, and we haven't even gotten 20 words out, right? Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar. 
<coughs> so I have a golden censer and a golden altar, right? Which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saint ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightning, and an earthquake. So smoke, fire, noises, thunderings, lightning, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. And then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, and a third of them were darkened, a third of the day they did not shine, and likewise the night. Did you get the theme there? Especially in the last part. Got a whole bunch of what? Thirds. So ask the obvious question. Questions. Once again, ask the obvious questions. The most obvious of the obvious questions is obvious. Yes, that's a new Cliffside t-shirt idea that I've come up with. <laughs> it's this one. Who is this other angel? Who's that? He's got a golden censer and he stands by the golden altar. By the way, how many golden altars are you? Do you think they're up there? How many golden censers do you think they're up? There are seven angels with trumpets. Again, God's trumpet section. But then this another angel. So again, who is the another angel? Why is there one half hour of universal silence? Uh, by the way, that's all there can be is one half hour. It can't be an hour. It can't be 31 minutes. It can't be 29. It can't be more. It's got to be 30 minutes. Why 30 minutes of silence? What if it went longer? What if it was shorter? It can't be either of those. So start putting that in your head because of the omniscience of God. But why is there one half hour of universal silence up to here, up to this point in, in, the, in the book of Revelation? There's been extraordinary noise. There's been tremendous sound. All we got is sound. It's brutal, the sound. I got loud voices. I got earthquakes. I've got war going on on the earth. The world is in turmoil. I got the voices of the four living creatures. And then I've got people singing uh, in heaven. I have a tremendous amount of noise, and now I got a half hour of intense silence. And I'm submitting to you that this is not just on heaven, but it is on earth. So I have universal silence. Everything is silent for one half hour. What's the obvious question there? Why? What's it mean? What's he doing? It is now the sign of silence. Don't think. Uh, don't think the sound of silence. 
That's a bad song by... I can come up with it. Give me a chance. Simon and Garfunkel. I did it. Yay, me. Yay. And I didn't even write it down or nothing. I just reached back to when I was in high school, and out comes Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel with their goofy song. But they got it wrong. It's the sign of silence. It's the suspension of sound. For one half hour, 30 minutes. Again, ask why. What is he saying? Whatsoever does the 30 minutes of silence mean? Now, once you've wrestled with that, what is the meaning of the thirds? Let me get them all to you again. A third of the, earth, of the trees burned up. A third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. A third of the ships destroyed. A third of the rivers uh, a third of the water, a third of the sun, a third of the stars, a third of the moon, a third of the day. Didn't, what is the meaning of this sign of the thirds? So let's put those on there. I have the sign of, the, of silence. Oops, I've already got that on there. I have the sign of silence, and I have the sign of thirds. What's the obvious question with thirds? I mean, you read all this thirds. What should you think as soon as you started reading it? Yes, supper day. What do you think, baby? That, that is immediately what most people have surmised. That this has something to do with this being the third part of the three-part sermon. But uh, as much as I love that, and I do love it, I ask a different question every time I see thirds. I ask, why not fourths? Why not, you know, three-sixteenths? Why doesn't it say, and I always joke at the job, um, go ahead and cut that, Jane, I say, to uh, 11 and 31 sixty-fourths. So I give her something to worry about for a half hour while I run away. Okay? <laughs> why, why isn't it, uh, you know, seven sixteenths of the rivers and, and, uh, and uh, 11 thirty seconds of the sea? Why is it thirds? He divided it into thirds, not fourths, not sevenths, thirds. Why? Yes, I have a third of the angels fell. As the bill in the front row points out. This thirds keeps coming back. It's called the sign of the thirds. Right? And then I have hail and fire mingled with blood. What's the obvious question there? You're, you're looking up. How's the weather today? Well, today we have, it's raining blood and blocks of rock and ice and fire. Not a good day for a picnic. Let's, let's cancel the fair. It's covered in blood. <laughs> Where does this blood come from and what does it mean? Why blood? And, of course, what does Revelation 8 have to do with Acts 2, right? Because, once again, we find noises, thunderings, lightnings, and smoke. Or, if you will, again, trumpets, languages, fire, smoke. And the smoke from a great furnace of Revelation 9-2, which sends you immediately to Genesis 15, right? So the four signs of Exodus 20, Acts 2, are here at Revelation 8 and 9, connected to Revelation 6, back to Acts 2 by Joel 2. Does that make sense to anybody? 
Genesis 15, I have a smoking furnace. You've got to know your Genesis 15. And I have a burning lamp. So the smoke and the lamp are explained in Genesis 15. Let me repeat what I just said, because I had commentary from which child? I need to know who's screaming at me, Karina. Huh? Oh, you have one. You. Do you know which one you have? That's Wesley? That's not Wesley. Okay, so we don't want to identify him for all of the Internet to know who, which baby is crying. Anyway, not Wesley is crying. <laughs> so let me repeat it. And it's okay. He can cry as loud as he can. We love it. Don't ever let him leave. I need some kind of feedback from this group. I know. I know. I, I don't disagree with you. No one on the Internet can hear you. <laughs> okay, so the four signs of Exodus 20. Let me repeat it. The four signs of Exodus 20 and the four signs of, of Acts 2 are here at Revelation 8 and 9, and they're connected to Revelation 6, back to Acts 2, by Joel 2. And if you understand that, wow, you're rolling. I will say one more time. Four signs of Exodus 20 and the four signs of Acts 2 are here at Revelation 8 and 9. And that, that connects back to Revelation 6, which connects you then back to Acts 2 because of Joel 2. Joel 2 is the black sun and the blood moon, which was given at Acts 2 by Peter explaining what was going on with the four signs of Acts 2. You got that? Terrific. No, uh, Genesis 15 explains two of the signs, of the four signs. It explains the burning lamp and the smoking furnace, or the smoke and the fire sign, if you will. Okay. Who is the another angel? That's the first one that we have to answer because that is the most obvious of the obvious question, and it's obvious. You could laugh a second time to make me feel better. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this angel, this another angel, has a golden censer and stands at the golden altar. So immediately you ask, how much more authority does he have than the trumpet section? Or does he have any? But he's got a golden censer and he stands at the golden altar. Who else has a golden censer? And who else gets to stand at the golden altar? Now look what else he's doing. He offers incense with prayers. So he takes his censer that has incense in it. And by the way, that sends you into the Holy of Holies and what kind of incense is burnt and what the purpose of that incense is. The incense fills the whole room up with smoke so that no one can see the high priest when he's in there, right? You don't want to see the high priest when you're in the Holy of Holies? How come? I get you, yeah, boom, lack a lack. I get you killed. So that, that, that smoke has got a very valuable typological symbolism to it. So this angel has the golden censer and he stands at the golden off altar and he offers the incense and he mixes it with the prayers of the saved and the smoke of the incense mixing with the prayers of the saved ascends before God. And it all comes out of the angel's hand. So who is the another angel? Who, who has the ability to take prayers 
and mix it with the, the sweet savor of the crucifixion and take it in front of the throne. Who has that authority? And who has the golden censer? And he's at the golden, all of that, hopefully, and you're yelling it out, hopefully, you, all of you see that that is a description of the redemptive work and the mediation of Jesus Christ. So that, another angel is Christ himself. So go into your Bible and start capitalizing angel in there. Because that is the angel, not uh, just another angel. Jesus Christ is the one that stands at the altar, and he is on the altar, and he is the altar of Exodus 20. And that picture is being given to us here at Revelation 8. And he presents the prayers of the saint, saints as our great high priest, right? That's what he's doing right now. He is in the second phase of his three-phase ministry. First phase is the sacrificial phase, if you will, or the great prophet phase. The second phase is what he's doing now, the great high priest. That's why he ascends and then ascends, and then he returns, and he is in the king phase. So he has three phases, doesn't he? Which corresponds to the what? The three-part sermon of Exodus 20. So you start to see that come together, I hope. So we're seeing the first and first two offices being displayed for you here. The prophet and the high priest stages of his ministry, the, the censor um, and the fire and the incense and then the prayer and the intermediation. So, but now something happens. Look what happens. I'll read it again. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. So what's that? Something's changing. Job's dis- job description just changed. We went from presenting the prayers of the saints to the, uh, to the throne room of God, the intermediation, or the mediation, and now we have this change. The golden censer is filled with fire from the altar, And that's important because the fire comes from the altar and it's now an instrument of judgment. It's become a weapon. So that which has served this process now for 2,000 years, that which has been part of the high priest process, is now a weapon. Right here, Revelation 8.5. That is a significant change. What you're viewing there is the high priest becoming or transitioning into the coming king. And he's going to end sin and judge the wicked now. He's no longer the high priest. He's the coming king. It happens right there, Revelation 8.5. And that attaches you back to where? That's how you connect to where? Acts 2. Because that's happening at Acts 2 as well. Not the same way. Let me go on and I'll explain it. The fire comes from the altar critically important because what's the altar? The altar is the law of the altar. The altar is a picture of his redemptive blood, his redemptive work, his sacrifice, his substitution. All of that is what the altar is. The sweet savor of his crucifixion and the fire comes that is cast down to earth comes from the altar. So he takes all of that which is true of him and he throws it into the earth and it becomes a burning fire now. And so all who spurn and all who reject and all who mark, mock and all who will not believe in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and his atonement blood and his covering of us and our sin and his ending of our sin and his, if you will, uh, covering our sin with himself, 
Those who will not believe that, who reject that, and who reject who Christ is, they're going to face the consequences of their rejection and their unbelief. And I can't say this enough. Unbelief is great wickedness. When you stand in the face of Christ and you look at him at his face and you say, I don't believe you, that's great wickedness. And he says so. The sacrifice of Christ, the law of the altar, is both loving forgiveness and safety and and all of that. But it's also evidence against the rejecters and the scorners. They rejected it, so now it becomes evidence in their trial against them. It becomes a consuming evidence, a devouring evidence. Uh, Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully, and so many people get this wrong, by the way, so it's a good time to bring it up. For if we sin willfully after we have received knowledge of the truth, it says. That's Hebrews 10.26. Let me reword it for you a little bit so maybe it will help you understand it. If we reject Jesus Christ willfully after we know who he is and what he has done to save us, then the fire of the altar devours. God is concerned about belief and unbelief. If you see Christ face to face and you reject him willfully, knowing that he is the Savior, he is God the Creator, he is the Lord of all things and the Judge, then that which saves becomes a consuming fire. In the tribulation, everyone on the earth will know who Jesus Christ is. They'll know he's creator God. They'll know he's the Savior. They'll know his name means salvation. But they willfully refuse to believe to his face. And if you do that, then condemnation will come. That which saves becomes evidence against you. But for today, I just want you to notice this transition from high priest to coming king. That's what's happening in 8.5. The high priest is transitioning. The censer is now being used as an instrument. Okay, That's how you connect it to Acts 2. Because Acts 2 was also a transition. What was the transition in Acts 2? That is when the great prophet transitioned to the high priest. So that's the, the connection between the two. Revelation 8, 9, or I have, or 6, 7, 8, 9, I have the transition from high priest to coming king. Acts 2, I have the transition from uh, great prophet uh, to high priest. Okay? Hopefully that makes some sense. Now, next, I want you to notice this water becoming blood is a reoccurring theme. Where is water first becoming blood? That's right, Exodus 7. Rivers become blood there. He turns the Nile River into blood. God likes to turn water into blood. It's one of his signs, what we call the water into blood sign. Oops. This one already went dead. I put tape on it trying to tell me it was alive. Water into blood sign. He gave it to the Egyptians, and now he's given it here in Revelation. He does water into wine, which is water into blood, too, by the way, doesn't he? There's a little slight difference on it, and I've covered that many times. 
that first miracle, uh, water into blood at the wedding, or water into wine, if you will. But he really does want to make you understand that water becoming blood is, an, is a reoccurring theme. And so here he's done it again, hasn't he? He has uh, the sea becoming blood, the rivers of the Nile became blood, the water, uh, well water, Exodus 7:19 became blood. God turns water into blood, and he does it here again. He has hail and fire followed uh, or mingled with blood, right? So here it is, blood falling from the sky mingled with water and fire, and quite the sun. Who could not understand it? Everybody on the earth got it. They all saw it. Okay, we got ice rocks, and we got. And by the way, they might actually be rocks covered with ice. He likes to throw rocks too, and he's a really good shot. And so odd, odds are that they really are rocks. So I have I have rocks and ice falling, and I have fire falling, and I have blood falling. And everybody on the earth understood it. Because, you see, we had the half hour of silence sign already. And everybody understood the half hour of silence sign, too. Let's just talk about that half hour of silence again. What can you do if there's no sound? I'm finding out as I get older. But what can you do if there's no sound, if God stops all sound? What's left? By the way, how is all sound stopped? How's he do it? Duh, he's God. He messes around with sound a lot. You have to know that. And when he does it, it's obvious he's doing it. And so, that's what's happening in Acts 2. He's messing around with sound. That's what happens in Genesis 11. He's messing around with sound, if you will. How we hear sound. He changes how we hear it. He changes how, it's, it, how the mind interprets it. So, what's left when he stops sound? And how is all sound stopped? What is the physics of sound? Why is he stopping sound? Here's another question. How is sound sound? Yes, another t-shirt. Same thing as how is language language? Do not have an opinion of language that makes language simple. One of the most complex signs in the Bible. The fact that we have language is extraordinary. How do you get language? You only get it one way. You cannot get it any other way. How do you get it? How does your child, I got a little baby screaming at me, which is cool. How do they get language? They have to, it has to be taught to them and it has to be given to them by somebody else who has it. How do you get salvation? It has to be given to you. Language is this marvelous picture of salvation. We can't explain language except that it be given. So where, who got it first? He hides wonderful things in language, but enough of that. I got off track. Clearly, the suspension of sound is something. What is it? Tell me what you think it is. He stops all sound. Why does he do it? He does it for a half hour. All of a sudden, in heaven and on earth is nothing but what? 
There's no sound. So what's left? What's left? What are people doing? Yell it out for me. Sound is vibration. There is no vibration. So what's left? What is vibration? Come on, you do this. What is vibration? It's molecular movement, isn't it? What's molecular movement? Huh? It, well, heat is exactly right. It's a, it's a, I got a friction of molecular movement. It's going through the atmosphere or the environment in which it's in. He stops it all. There's no molecular movement. So what's left? If I got no molecular movement, what do I have left? If I have no physical properties, what properties are left? Spiritual property. Mental properties. He shuts down. No one can talk to anybody. He shuts down all sound. Silence. Think about it. What's that? That's noise. Ain't no noise. He shuts it down for a half hour. So what is that? That is incredible mercy. Incredible mercy. Clearly, the suspension of sound is incredible mercy, regardless of any other considerations. You see, every human being was given one half hour to do what? To think. And what are they supposed to think about? actually supposed to do what? Pray. Because things are coming. You have one half hour to pray. Pray for what? Pray for your life. Pray for the life of your families. Pray for your friends. Pray for everything you've got. you got one half hour to pray for forgiveness, for pray for salvation, to pray for life. Are you going to have physical life very long? No, that's going away. You better start praying for true life. You better start praying for everlasting life. How many in that half hour repent of their unbelief that Jesus Christ is God? How many? Well, you get a record. Not very many. Half hour of silence. And very few people pray for their lives. Think about the thief on the cross. I got two of them. One of them says, You are the great rememberer. Remember me. He knew that Christ was the one who remembers, that he was God himself, the only one who can remember, who has the capacity. But hardly any repent of their unbelief. Nonetheless, everyone put or, I'm sorry, God put everyone into silence and their mental properties were the only thing they had. And then all of a sudden, blood rains down with fire and hail. Okay, that's what comes next. After the silence, I got blood coming down with fire and hail. What is that? Let's just do it this way. That's the way I used to do it with the eighth graders years ago. I wish Katrina was here. Okay, is hail, actually ice rocks, oops, I can't spell hail. Sounds like I said hail, but I didn't. I should learn to preach better in a southern accent. I'd have much higher attendance. We all know that. We'd have more country western music, which would be good. The banjo would get to show up. Uh, hail. 
rocks covered with ice falling on your head. Good or bad? Bad. We will all agree. Bad. Okay? Fire coming down, burning everything up. Good or bad? Bad. We'll go bad. So far, so good. Blood. Blood falling. Good or bad? Oh, no. I got hit by blood. Ah! Bad? Compared to hail and fire? Oh, I got hit by fire. <laughs> I got hit by hail the size of a Buick. Whack! Oh, I had blood fall on me. Who's getting the better deal? I'll take the blood. Hey, there's a song. I'll take the blood. Huh? Blood is good. Half hour of silence. Chance to pray to God and live. Blood falling from heaven. Good. Blood is more mercy. You get hit by the blood, had a whole lot better than hit by the fire. A whole lot better than hit by the hail rock. I got hit by the blood. There's another song. Hit by the blood. That's good. I expect somebody to send me a song in the key of E minor called Hit by the Blood. <laughs> Blood is life. Blood is the symbol of Christ's sacrifice, his crucifixion. So once again, God is providing a way out, an escape. He reaches down to his creatures. That's what he does. He's doing it even though he's at part three of the three parts, right? Time is short, but once again, God is moving really slow, isn't he? He's not just wiping people out. He's injecting time into the process. He, only a third of the sun is struck. You notice that? Only a third is struck. Why not strike the whole thing? He didn't. He just struck a third. So in Anchorage, instead of it being 50 degrees, it's still two-thirds of 50 and raining. Okay? Some parts of the country, they'll go, wow, it's 75 well, why not all the sun? Why not kill all the trees? Why not kill all the creatures? They're food, aren't they? The trees provide food, so do the creatures. No, God is doing this progressively, little by little, providing time for the wicked to repent. That is who he is. That is how he does things. That is what he's doing, which leads us to C.S. Lewis uh, in a book that he wrote called A Grief Observed. And it, it was given to me the other day. I'll get into that in a minute. Let me put it on the board and repeat it. A grief observed. A grief. He wrote it in 1961. He died in 1963. Um, and he was writing it while mourning for the death of his wife. It's really an extraordinary story. He, he gets a book out. Uh, an empty journal, and he starts to write in it um, while he is dealing with the death of his wife. And and while he's doing it, as I read it, and it's not, don't be too impressed with me, I read it uh, yesterday, um, but it's not that thick, it's pretty, maybe a hundred pages. 
But while he is mourning the death of his wife, he takes the time to destroy hyper-Calvinism. That'll make Sharon in Texas very happy. Or he calls it extreme Calvinism, and you've heard me talk about it. It, it has the conclusion that God is the cosmic uh, sadist. Uh, and being a, or, and he actually gets into the point where he says uh, vivisector, sector, which is someone who dissects a human being or an animal while they are still alive. And hyper-Calvinism, extreme Calvinism has the position, and so does uh, um, evolutionary philosophy, that it, they say if there is a God, then he is the cosmic sadist. He is torturing people left and right, and he enjoys it. The hyper-Calvinist or the extreme Calvinist, as T.S. Lewis uh, uh, illustrates, uh, believes that, uh, believes that uh, therefore uh, sadism is somehow good, as you've heard me say. But C.S. Lewis, he destroys that position just as an afterthought. While he is mourning his wife, he just very quickly wipes it out, brilliantly. Um, He also destroys physicalism, or monism, which says that all we are is a physical component. There is no spiritual component to us. He, He destroys that. He swats both of those aside so quickly that if you didn't notice he did it, you would be stunned. I mean, it's amazing. So again, I read it, a grief observed yesterday at the urging of Lindsay Bell and, and uh, uh, Misty. And I, again, for uh, it's been a long time since I've confronted the incredible mind of C.S. Lewis, but I did it again. And I came away after reading it so quickly, uh, I came away intending to add Mr. Lewis uh, to Professor Edgar Andrews because these two should be a box set. Um, a grief observed and who made God. Uh, they should be bound together in a little thing. Cliffside presents. We should do that. Anyway, C.S. Lewis says this on page 51, and we'll end with this. And I'm quoting him as uh, I wrote it down. I didn't bring the book. I, let me quote it as best I wrote it. Here's what C.S. Lewis says, 1961, while mourning his wife. How can I put it better? Would momentously real or abstention, I'm sorry, or abstentionately real do? Is it as if the experience of God said to me, you are, as it happens, extremely happy that your wife is still a fact? So in other words, he said, is it obstinate? Or is it momentous? Or momentous? Momentous, sorry. Is it momentous or is it obstinate? How real is it? And he says, again, let me repeat. Is it, it is as if the experience said to me, the death of his wife, you are, as it happens, extremely happy, that, and he calls her H, that H is still a fact. Or his wife continues to exist. He is very happy that his wife continues to exist. He has proven it to himself. And it is if the experience tells him that. So that is either momentous or it is obstinate. But remember, he goes on to say, she would be equally a fact whether you like it or not. Let me repeat that for everybody hiding in the back. 
She would be equally a fact whether you like it or not. Your preferences have not been considered. Let me repeat that. Our preferences have not been considered. Let me put it another way. For what does the Scripture say? Romans 4, 3. What we prefer the Scripture say doesn't matter. Our preferences haven't been considered. What the Scriptures say matters. Our experiences Here's where I am, right? Item two. Our experiences, our feelings, our preferences do not matter, have not been considered by God. If they're inconsistent with Scripture, they're just simply wrong. C.S. Lewis figured out that he was happy that it was a fact that his wife continued to exist. But he also figured out immediately him being happy had nothing to do with her being a fact. And then he went on to say that God had gone around knocking down his temple of cards. That's what will happen. You can have a preference. If it is inconsistent with Scripture, then it is not a fact. It's simply an experience or a feeling, and it has no validity. None. He called his, yes, C.S. Lewis called his, he said he had a temple of cards. And this is C.S. Lewis. He, I, I make the comment that when you under great sorrow, none of us are good theologians. That's why this book is so profound. You'll read it, um, I believe, and, and re- respond the way I will. You'll read it like this. What did he just say? Let me read it again. Okay, what did he just say? Maybe I should read it. Oh, what did he say? He just destroyed extreme Calvinism. In one sentence, he destroyed it. He destroys physicalism. In one sentence, he destroys it. He destroys the Acts 2 church. In one sentence. Because he exposes them as preferences. And let me say it again. Our preferences have not been considered. And God will go about knocking down our house of cards, our temple of cards, much to our great dismay. So when it happens to you, is it going to happen to you? Oh, yeah. Happened to us. And I'll bring it up because he said next week because he says some amazing things that all of us need to know. He builds on our preferences have not been considered, what the implications to us are. Let's rise and be dismissed.